I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Churchill, the great orator. A Telegraph podcast in association with Universal Pictures' Darkest Hour. Episode 3, The End of the Beginning. It was a very, very significant moment. And I'll tell you a true story that I don't think anyone knows it. Uh, The Queen Mother told me this story. When the Alamein dispatch arrived, my grandfather was very keen to give it to the king. And the king hated people being late. And my grandfather was always late. So my grandmother used to put the clocks forward 30 minutes on the day so he wouldn't be late. But on this particular day, he was very late because he wanted to bring the the dispatch, and he walked into the room, and he walked straight over to the king, and he handed him the dispatch box, and he said, Sir, I bring you victory. And the king opened it, and inside was General Alex's dispatch from Alamein. Sir Nicholas Soames, describing the moment in 1942 when his grandfather, Winston Churchill, was at last able to give the king and the country a victory. I'm Harry de Ketville, the comment editor at The Telegraph. In this, the third episode of our series, I want to look at the speech in which Churchill discussed this crucial victory. Come this way. He gave it on November the 10th, 1942, a Tuesday, at the Lord Mayor's luncheon at Mansion House the official residence of the Lord Mayor of London. The staircase leading up, where are we going now? Uh, so we're going on to the first floor of Mansion House, which is where um, most of the uh, sort of entertaining takes place. I'm Tim Rolfe, I'm the Saul Bearer of London at Mansion House, and my job is to look after the Lord Mayor of London. Pictures on the walls as we go up here, and, and now a big oak door. And there's always a sort of throne. So that is the chair that the Lord Mayor sat on at the luncheon in 
November 1942. So on that particular lunch, there were about uh, 250 guests, and they were here because it was the start of a new mayoralty, so a new Lord Mayor is elected every November. Um, now, ordinarily, that event takes place in Guildhall, which is the big medieval building at the heart of the city, but that wasn't an option because it had been burnt down in an air raid the year before. So the whole event was transferred to the mansion house. And who are the guests? Um, so it's a, it, it then, as now, is a gathering of civic society in its broadest sense. So um, uh, the guests would have included people from the city, people from government, people from business, uh, from the judiciary, the church, the armed forces and other institutions. It's probably what nowadays we'd call a gathering of key stakeholders, but I'm pretty sure that Churchill wouldn't have used that phrase. He would have seen it as the establishment. That's right, the great and the good. And I think it probably would have been much in people's minds that a year or two before they would have been gathering in a building which had since been destroyed in the war. It's a really remarkable room that I'm looking around now. It must be the size of a small football pitch rising high above me. It's a vision of white columns and bright gilt. We know, reported in the Express breathlessly the day after, that they ate real turtle soup, kedgeree, turkey with proper accompaniments, a fruit pudding with jam sauce, a choice of fruits, a roll, but no butter, mind. That was too much in the age of rationing. A glass of sherry, of course, choice of other wines, just a thimble of brandy, coffee, and, crucially for the Prime Minister, the offer of a cigar. Remarkably, Churchill would have sat in the chair right behind me, velvet cushions, gilt lion-head handles where he would have drummed his fingers as he waited to give that speech, which we've come to know for one immortal line, which actually comes towards the end of that speech, the end of the beginning. I have never promised anything about blood, tears, toil and sweat. Now, however, we have a new experience. We have victory. A, a remarkable and definite victory. A bright gleam has caught the helmets of our soldiers and warmed and cheered all our hearts. The late, the late Monsieur Venezuela observed that in all our wars, England, he ought to have said Britain, of course, <laughs> England always wins one battle, the last. We seem to have begun rather earlier this time. Churchill is feeling vindicated. There have been almost nothing for Britain but defeats up until that point. My name is Simon Heffer. I write for the Daily and Sunday Telegraphs, but I also write history books about the late 19th and early 20th centuries. They've had this Pyrrhic victory at Dunkirk. They've won the Battle of Britain, but they haven't defeated the Germans. They've just put off an invasion. And it particularly appears in North Africa that Rommel, the field marshal who's in charge of the Wehrmacht forces there, is, is holding all before him. And suddenly, uh, we win at Al-Alamein. The order of the day is wipe out the Axis in Africa. Every communique tells how the German and Italian columns are being relentlessly pursued and destroyed. 
Day and night, there's no let-up in the hammering. The Montgomery mincing machine is chewing the Africa quarter shreds. Outstanding in battle is the RAF, maintaining a non-stop onslaught on the broken enemy streaming back. The greatest British success of the war overseas has been struck at Rommel, Germany's ablest commander, outgeneraled and outfought. Once we turn the tide at Al Alamein, we drive the Germans out of Africa. Now, this is hugely important because it means they no longer control the Mediterranean. And it also means that the Middle Eastern oil supplies that are essential to us to continue the war have been secured. So um, it's a hugely important victory. And it is absolutely central to the Churchill myth, this speech, but also absolutely central to the national myth that we turned things round after Alamein, and from then on victory was certain. Now, that wasn't strictly true. We very nearly got held up by the Germans in the Ardennes in December and January 1944, but it was a victory that was of enormous significance, and it showed, above all, that the Germans were not invincible. With me here at Mansion House is Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and the author of a book called You Talking to Me? Rhetoric from Aristotle to Obama. Sam, the first thing that strikes me is that Churchill is referring back to the speech we begin this series with when he spoke to the House of Commons back in May 1940, when he said that I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears and sweat. As a rhetorical technique, what does that achieve? Well, I mean, for a start, if you've got a good phrase, you know, make the most of it. I mean, traditionally, you you will quote people in the way, say, Obama quotes Lincoln, to kind of arrogate some of the sort of authority and the rhetorical bona fides of, of your predecessors. But of course, you know, Churchill's, in a way, he's, he's doing a callback to himself. Strong and stable is what you want in a wartime leader. And, you know, stability and continuity is what you establish if you have a kind of rhetorical toolkit that you, you know, keep harking back to. They, they sense that this is part of one speech, if you like. This is a man who knows how to mix it, isn't it? I'm thinking about the bright gleam of victory glinting on the helmet. The sort of oratund Elizabethanisms that go through his language, the great flutters into poetry, are part of what, you know, was a very conscious project to say, this is a civilizational struggle, this is us being put to the test, this is, which, of course, is actually quite a good encouragement to people fighting. You know, if you're saying to people fighting or to people even on the home front, well, we're going to have a war and there'll be a lot of fighting and some of you will be dead at the end, but maybe we'll win. Um, it's not quite as encouraging as if you, you know, cast your troops in a kind of unbroken line of honourable descent from the warriors of Achilles, you know. Um, so I think, you know, sounding a bit fancy is quite an important part of the job. Like any great performer, Churchill was acutely aware of the nature of his audience. Richard Toy, professor of modern history at the University of Exeter, explained to me that in this instance, the audience went well beyond the people in front of him in the mansion house. This was something that was being broadcast, was being filmed. So you can actually see on the film uh, that not only is he speaking to the audience inside the room, but that there are loudspeakers on the outside of the building and that a crowd has gathered outside to listen to him. 
That's amazing. And so also presumably to speak to his international audience. Yes, uh, of course, he always knew that what he said was being heard by allies. It was also being heard by the enemy, which meant that an awful lot of care had to be taken about particular details of military operations and so forth. We forget, don't we? We always think about the parliamentary reception and the British reception. But I've never thought once in my life about the German reception. What did the Nazis make of these speeches? Well, they couldn't disguise from the German people that they were going on. And so what they tried to do was report them uh, incredibly selectively, uh, although people uh, were listening to them um, illegally, so nobody could deny that the speeches were occurring. You then had to kind of try and spin them. And eventually the Nazis moved on from simply denouncing Churchill as an old drunk, which was the the standard line. They then moved to comparing Churchill's predictions about what would happen with um, uh, what actually had happened. And also, naturally, it was possible to contrast Churchill's comments about the Bolsheviks and the Soviet Union in the sort of post-1917 period with the fact that he was now an ally of the Soviets and so could um, uh, be accused of hypocrisy. One of the most surprising things about this speech, which Richard Toy pointed out to me, is that when you read it written down, it sounds very solemn and portentous. But if you listen to the news footage, that famous phrase is actually being played for laughs. Ronald's army has been defeated. It has been... It has been very largely destroyed as a fighting force. Ah, this is not the end. Uh, It is not even the beginning of the end. Uh, But it is perhaps the end of the beginning. (laughs) Henceforward, uh, Hitler's Nazis will be equally well armed and perhaps even better armed troops. Henceforward, they will have to face... Sam, how important is humour as a rhetorical tool? Well, it's hugely important. I mean, it's sort of never to be underestimated. Obviously, one doesn't want to suggest that Churchill was sort of making light of the seriousness of the situation. But in one sense, you could talk about wit, you know, the play on words. That compels a sort of pleasure in the wordplay, which makes something memorable. And a lot of rhetoric is about finding a memorable phrase, and a lot of what makes a phrase memorable is that it's witty. But humour also works in a much wider sense. You know, the basic job of any orator is to take a situation from which I begin, which is, you know, here's me on the stage, and here is a collection of individuals all separate from me in the audience, and to shape that group of people into a collective us. A lot of that has to do with finding commonality, you know, common cultural assumptions. And humour, because as we know through history, you know, humour is one of the things that travels least well. You know, nobody now finds Cicero's jokes funny, but we know that at the time they did. And even, you know, the most earnest English teacher in the audience would be laughing a little bit too loudly at Shakespeare's gags because, you know, those are the part of Shakespeare that travel to us least well because humour is so mobile, it changes so fast, it's based on so many shared cultural assumptions and underpinnings. That means that if you get humour right, you've instantly hit something very direct in your connection with your audience. Plus, of course, laughter is a form of kind of involuntary assent. You know, any 
comedian who's ever faced a heckler knows that you have to get a bigger laugh than the heckler or you're dead because the audience is then laughing at you rather than with you. So humour is a way, it's of sort of bonding an audience, of speaking to shared assumptions, and it also, I suppose, particularly in this sort of situation, bespeaks confidence. If you can be light about a situation that's very grave, that shows a sort of lack of fear. It doesn't show that you're not taking the situation seriously, but it shows that you'll master enough of your situation in it to be able to make a joke about it. Modern politicians are also keen to harness the tricksy power of humour. One who often, though not always, seems to manage it is, of course, Boris Johnson. The Foreign Secretary is a devotee of Churchill and author of The Churchill Factor. Here he is on stage at a recent Telegraph event making everybody laugh and talking about that fine phrase, this is not the end, it is not the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. Now that is an ascending tricolon, isn't it? <laughs> Hang on. Yes. We, well, wait, 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 no, this is very important. I think people are interested in this. That, that is an ascending tricolon, but it is varied by what device? By chiasmus. <laughs> because he's, he's taken end and beginning and then flipped them round. And that was also a favourite device of, of, of great ancient uh, orators. And, and actually, one of Churchill's favourite linguistic tricks, you know, he likes to say, we shape our buildings and then they shape us. Or he says, uh, I am ready to meet my maker, whether my maker is ready for the ordeal of meeting me is another question. Or, uh, he, uh, or, or he says, uh, I have taken more out of alcohol than alcohol was taken out of me, which is, which, you know, so he has, he has, this, he has this trick in his mind. Uh, and, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a trope, it's a trick, but he, he uses it absolutely, absolutely brilliantly. And like all the, the best orators, when he, when he, when he wants really to, to punch through into people's imagination, uh, the best English speakers, he, he uses short Anglo-Saxon words, short Anglo-Saxon words, and politicians who really make their mark register with the public on the, on the Today programme are those, you know, frankly, who, who keep it very, very simple that time in the morning. And <laughs> so, so he, was, he was instinctively brilliant. Sam, ascending tricolons and chiasmus are not everyday terms now. One of the fascinating things I was uh, amazed to discover is that Churchill, on this speech, made pencil notes just before he gave it, presumably, ensuring that there was a kind of echo in that phrase, the end of the beginning, the beginning of the end. So presumably Churchill would have understood and known very specifically about these rhetorical devices. Very much so, yes. And in fact, there's a lovely bit in his, I think it's 1899 novel, Savrola, where he describes somebody writing a speech. And, you know, he, he talks about this person becoming kind of intoxicated by saying, oh, you know, here I can put in an antithesis and here's a chiasmus and there's a running group of three. I mean, the thing to remember, though, is that they are quite arcane terms and they're unfamiliar to almost everybody, but what they describe is familiar to anybody who's listened to a political speech. I mean, buy it, get it, argos it is an ascending tricolon. The idea of grouping things into three, or of the thing we call anaphora, which is where you begin um, successive sentences or clauses with the same word, is, is everywhere. This is not the end. This is not the beginning of the end. This is perhaps the big... Exactly. exactly. That's, a, that's an anaphoric... That... 
tricolon crescents with chiasmus. I mean, it's like one of those sort of bake-off spectacular puddings. Exactly. And pike, 9.6 from the Romanian judge there. <laughs> exactly. Churchill, the great orator, in association with Universal Pictures' Darkest Hour. On a side note, Churchill always seems to say, Nazis. Why? Was it a idiosyncratic at the time, as it sounds now? Um, I think it was. I mean, the best, though I'm not a historian of Churchill exactly, the best explanation I've heard explained is he did it to piss them off. <laughs> Just to annoy them. As Just well. to annoy them, to make them sound silly. And making your enemy sound silly is, is a perfectly legitimate tactic of wartime rhetoric. The next section of the speech sees a change in tone. The wit is gone, and Churchill instead paints a very vivid picture of the destruction which war brings to ordinary life and ordinary people. When I read, my lords and gentlemen of the coastal road, crammed with the flying German vehicles, under the blasting attacks, of the Royal Air Force. I could not but remember those roads of France and Flanders, crowded not with fighting men, but with their helpless refugees, women and children, fleeing with their pitiful barrows and household goods, on whom such merciless cruelty was wreaked. I have, my Lord Mayor, I trust, a humane disposition, but I must say I could not help feeling that what was happening, however grievous, was only justice grimly reclaiming her rights. We talked earlier about his awareness of his international audience, and in the next section of the speech, his focus explicitly shifts to America. He says, the President of the United States, who is Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces of America, is the author of this mighty undertaking, and in all of it I have been his active and ardent lieutenant. And a bit later, as the speech draws to a close, he talks of how the British and American affairs continue to prosper in the Mediterranean, and the whole event will be a new bond between the English-speaking peoples and a new hope for the whole world. Although by then America had joined in the war, it had its own battles to fight, my name is Anne Seber, and I'm a historian and biographer of Churchill's mother, Jenny. But, you know, Churchill uses this great phrase about British and American affairs continue to prosper, English-speaking peoples and a new hope for the whole world. So he's using every possible opportunity to show that our fate is inextricably entwined with America. In one speech... Winston actually mentions his mother, doesn't he? That speech was extraordinary in 1941 when Churchill crossed the Atlantic in itself no mean feat and addressed both houses of Congress and started off lightheartedly saying, of course, if my father were American, I'd be here under my own steam. But because my mother was American, I've been invited and maybe it's better that way. And then he refers to his mother's cherished memory across the veil of years. And it was a very deliberate reminder to his audience that here was this man who was the British leader, but he was half American. 
Churchill's parentage is just one part of his considerable attraction for Americans, even today. Simon Heffer. The Americans do have a clearer notion than the British have, perhaps because it is a presidential system, of leadership. And I think what appeals to the Americans so much about Churchill is that he was a very good leader, that he articulated um, responses to international problems very clearly and always seemed to have an idea of how to get out of those problems. And I think in this country, because we have a parliamentary system, we have a hereditary head of state and we elect our prime minister, um, who's there to give the political leadership. The political leadership comes pretty low down the list, but to Americans, um, leadership is a great thing and it's why they like Churchill. Winston Churchill played a pivotal role at a time in history of such great dimension. I, I think that the role he played is just fascinating for Americans. Plus, because his mother was American and, and had his own sort of deep affinity with the United States, I think that we feel sort of like we can claim him a bit ourselves. Gretchen Rubin is the author of several New York Times best-selling books on the subjects of happiness, good habits, and a framework for analyzing personality types, which she calls the four tendencies. She's also a big Churchill fan and the author of 40 Ways to Look at Winston Churchill, a brief account of a long life. I was drawn to the study of Winston Churchill because really my subject as a writer is human nature. And a figure like Winston Churchill is so exaggerated, so gigantic, that you it really allowed me to see hidden aspects of human nature more clearly because he's just, he's so enormous and he lived through such astounding times. When dividing people into the four tendencies, upholder, questioner, obliger, rebel, it's very important that we know the way somebody thought. And I think that Winston Churchill was an upholder. That is to say, he readily met both outer expectations and inner expectations. He just did what he needed to do. If he needed to go off and paint in the middle of things, he'd go off and paint. If he needed to take a nap and then wanted to stay up until the middle of the night, he did. And um, so you see over and over that he can, he's very aware of outer expectations and what's expected of him, but he also can very much set up circumstances in a way that are going to allow him to do the things that he wanted, he wanted to get done uh, in the way that was right for him. One of the things that I found most charming in my study of Winston Churchill is the way he would wear his side iron suit. Uh, it was sort of a, a suit that he could jump into and it just zipped up. It was like a onesie that you would put on an infant, you know, kind of coveralls. I always want to wear uh, yoga pants and running shoes. And I admired the fact that even as, you know, wartime prime minister, he's like, I need to wear comfortable clothes. And it was not the kind of garment that you would think that uh, someone would be wearing out in public during the day in important meetings. But he just did it. His enduring appeal abroad and at home is undisputed. But for many, this occasion, here at Mansion House, marked not only the turning point of the war, but the beginning of a diminishing of his oratorical power. James Taylor is curator of the Churchill War Rooms. The speeches tend to lose their power after 1941 because there isn't that national emergency in the same way. I mean, once the United States has come into the war, and the Soviet Union first, then the United States, victory is inevitable. They lose their drama and also he's quite often having to deliver messages that he's agreed with his allies. And as Churchill said himself later, there's only one thing that's you know, worse than fighting without allies and that's fighting with them. As I look round, it's such an analogue world here. We've got paper and ink and fountain pens and blotters 
And today, yeah. of course, we live in such a digital age where yes. none of this would exist. It will be computers and Wi-Fi. Do you think that politicians today still have the idea that words can be so powerful? I do. But, of course, they're delivered in a very, very different fashion. Um, obviously, Twitter, very much in the news, how that's being used. And also, I, th I think one of the issues is there's a lack of trust, perhaps, in information now, because it's so divergent. I mean, when you, when you think that when Churchill is speaking, you're getting that information from the one source that becomes a very trusted source as well. But the speeches, as you say, 30 hours preparation into 30 minutes of oratory, we don't see that anymore. No, we don't. We, we absolutely don't. I mean, this was a real craft in a sense that, you know, letter writing, for example, we don't have anymore. Um, we're much more prepared to commit our thoughts and feelings to email in a kind of hurried way or to Twitter or have you. Churchill wasn't. I mean, he wouldn't have understood this. I think we lost the art of the great political speech um, probably 30 or 40 years ago, long precedes the advent of the digital world and the soundbite. It was really when politicians um, started to hire endless research assistants to write their speeches for them. I can't think of a prime minister who's written his or her own speeches uh, for really the last 50 years, probably not since the day of um, uh, Churchill himself, Anthony Eden, and even they had people to help them, but they had an idea of what they wanted to do. I think what's changed in this country is that in those days, people came into politics because they had really definite ideas of what, if they got power, they would do with it. Now people come into politics because it's just another job. It's become managerial rather than becoming a job about actually giving a lead. And if you have no convictions, it's incredibly hard to make a speech about anything. Now, admittedly, we haven't had uh, that sort of existential nightmare that Churchill had in the summer of 1940 when he had to make these speeches in order to keep Britain going. But um, I, I, I think even if we had a crisis again, because our political class is so unschooled in how to make a speech, um, because of its lack of conviction, we would really struggle to have that, that, that sort of clear leadership that Churchill provided. Ah, this is not the end. Uh, it is not even the beginning of the end. Uh, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. <laughs> Sam Leith, can we look at the quotation which Churchill chooses to end his speech with? It's that from Byron, Child Harold's Pilgrimage. Millions of tongues record thee, and anew their children's lips shall echo them and say, Here, where the sword united nations drew, our countrymen were warring on that day, and this is much, and all which will not pass away. Well, lovely, isn't it? And will not pass away. It also has that lovely, you know, to us, very sort of resonant mention of the United Nations. Of course, this speech was 1942, and the United Nations wasn't, as we all know, founded until 1945. But it was already kind of underway, what was to become the United Nations. People were talking about that, and the phrase had passed into currency. So it would hopefully have had a little resonance with the audience even then. It's very interesting that he's quoting from Child Harold's Pilgrimage, which is a, a narrative poem about a man despairing of war, and people would have known how despair was woven into that poem but it says and this is much and all which will not pass away I kept thinking what does that remind me and of course it is 
if the British Empire and its Commonwealth lasts for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. It's that idea of being able to say, if time goes on forever, we will still look back upon this moment with awe and astonishment. Which is a straight lift from the Crispin's Day speech in Henry V. I think that business of looking back on a moment in history, I mean, A, it gives a sort of grandeur, but also it touches on one of the classic kind of topoi of political rhetoric, which is that you're always at once wanting to say that something is completely within the power of the audience, that it's a matter of will and that it can be achieved, but you also want to say or imply that there is a larger force here that is on your side. Because ultimately, Churchill had a wonderful sense of posterity, didn't he? He drew on it, as you say, from these quotes which arrogated their power to himself. And he must have known, surely, that words written down and delivered in the way that he did would have lasted even beyond his own lifetime. Well, notoriously, he said, you know, history will be kind to me because I intend to write it. Um, And, you know, for better or for worse, he desperately, desperately wanted to be a great man. And, you know... Who'd have thought it? It turned out he was. Churchill, the Great Orator, was presented by me, Harry DeKettville, and produced by Kate Taylor. It was a blanket production for The Telegraph. And to make sure you don't miss an episode of Churchill, the Great Orator, subscribe on iTunes or your preferred podcast host, and please do leave us a review.